0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNhost. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, we go back to AOC Europe in Bonn, Germany to listen in on a conversation that I had with writer and analyst Tom Withington. Uh, As many of you know who have followed me on Twitter, we were at AOC Europe broadcasting live using Twitter spaces. We released several episodes each day, and we had the opportunity to talk to a number of the presenters, exhibitors, and other attendees there at the show and and kind of get a sense for all the uh, great uh, topics and information that we were gathering. Tom Withington was a guest co-host of mine throughout the week. I greatly appreciated his time, and he was gracious enough to give me a little bit extra uh, to sit down with him over a beer and just talk a little bit more comprehensively about some of the stuff that we heard at the conference. So I wanted to bring that to you today. If you're interested in hearing more from the episodes, I do encourage you to go to my profile on Twitter at FTCNhost, all the episodes are still on my profile page, and you can download those and listen to those and, and get a sense for everything that was talked about. But without further delay, let's listen in. In this episode, we are coming to you live from AOC Europe. We are in Bonn, Germany, and I am here with special guest, Dr. Tom Whittington, writer and analyst. I have had him on From the Crows before just a few months ago to talk about ChatGPT. 2 Uh, But we've been here at the show uh, doing some live streaming and talking to the speakers, talking to exhibitors. So I wanted to take a few moments to have Tom on the show again here for this episode to talk a little bit about what we're learning at AOC Europe here this week. The theme being how to achieve multi-domain operations. So Tom, thanks for joining me here on the show.
1: And it's always a pleasure to catch up. I'm thrilled to be that you've made it over this side of the pond, and uh, I think we've had a great day's discussion. And a great day's uh, conversation, really. So a to talk about. It.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we tried to set this up at a, a local pub here d- down the street, had some uh, signal issues. And so now uh, we're coming from another location, but we still have the beer. So so, <laughs> you yourself, I, I'm not really sure how this conversation is going to go, but I'm sure nothing can go wrong.
1: Well, I do. Ju- I just give, it, talking of the beer, I give a bit of a shout out to anybody uh, out there in the ether who is a connoisseur. Okay. Um, we're both enjoying a hopper Prowl, which is a vice beer or a wheat beer, as they refer to me in Germany, and um, it's going down rather well, isn't it? And we, um, I think, it's quite out. We were talking about the spectrum that we managed to find the only. Up in Germany It doesn't seem to have spectrum
0: for it exactly. So, uh, you know, I appreciate your your flexibility in this. And, and of course, you know, it's been a it's been a, a long couple of days here. We're all jet lag. We're all working sixteen hour days, and now we are drinking beer. So, um, so I want I want to go to talking about a little bit about the the, the overarching theme. Uh, you spoke today, and we'll get to your presentation in a second, but. You know, it is very interesting because, you know, from U.S. perspective, when we talk multi-domain operations, we talk about, obviously, within the context of Army, Air Force, Marines, and so forth. But in Europe, you know, now we have the European piece that we talk about coalition warfare and multi-domain operations takes on a whole different feel to it. Talk a little bit about what overall, what have we been learning in the first day here at the conference as it pertains to achieving multi-domain operations. And, uh, you know, we've heard from several different countries, several different organizations, from members of parliament to uh, military generals. So what thoughts uh, stick in your head? The
1: big thing, and I suppose the big takeaway for me from this event is it maybe sounds a little bit cliche to say it, but it's the connectivity question. When I first started getting into electronic warfare, a lot of the conversation was about, you know, fine fixing and then treating the target, whether that's, you know, deny, degrade, damage, etc. cetera. Whereas now we're taking that as red, We're taking that as red that we've got the assets that we need to find the signal of interest in all of the noise and then to get an effect on it, whatever that effect might be. But the big question now has moved to the network, uh, we know that we need to make a better quality of decision at a faster clip than our adversary. That's probably the secret of prevailing, not just in the electromagnetic environment, but I think probably in all domains of conflict. So a long time, I think one of the things that we sort of took as read is, well, we'll have the networks, it's not going to be a problem, you know, we'll, we'll go to war and this will all be there. Whereas I'm very hard to, the people are now saying, okay, do we have the networks? The conversation has shifted in tenor a little bit. And if we do have the networks, two things, do they have the, the carriage that we need to move the information around? Are they resilient? And crucially, are they redundant? Because we see these very lovely graphics with a lot of lines between warships and aircraft and land assets and satellites and all of that, zeros and ones going between them. But we all know that in reality, heavens forbid, if we are at war, maybe half of those will be available. So how do we scale that? How do we we deal with that? So that's a big takeaway for me. But I think Austin with these events is you've got your immediate takeaways, but then there will be the ones that you think are like two months or three weeks, whatever it is, going, ah, it's good somebody brought that up.
0: Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to speak with a, a lot of the presenters this week, some of the exhibitors. And and for those of you listening, uh, you can go onto Twitter at FTCN Host and uh, download all the recordings that we've been doing the live streaming this week. But you, know, the con- connectivity piece has, has come up time and again, and, and I appreciate your thoughts on this. And one of the things that we've talked about is it's one thing to say in, in, in a physical space, you can connect communication signals and so forth. But when you get into the organizational element of how a particular force will communicate and share information, decision-making across another force, another country's organization, it becomes much more difficult to handle. We heard a little bit about that today. How do we keep pace with this need for fast decision-making, for fast connectivity in an era where coalition warfare and having to be on the same page across countries uh, partner countries, it is that's this is the warfare of the future. So it, it seems to exponentially increase some of the problems that we face with connectivity. I think one of the things we're lucky with in NATO is that in many
1: ways the rules of the road are already there because yeah. we've dealt with things like Legion, Metal, Link 16, tactical data links that we use need to move tactical information either around the air environment, obviously link eleven, the maritime domain. In a sense, we've got the rules of the road. We know that um if you're involved in an air operation, if the US is a lead nation, if it's a NATO-led initiative, that really the rules of the road is, okay, everybody, if you've not got Link 16, you can't really come along and play, you know, you've got to have this. So I think a lot of it is about realizing, well, what standards do we have already? Where are we at the moment? We've been talking a lot about standards over the past few days. So what do we have in place that is already the rules of the road for NATO members saying, if you want to move information... Between each other or within your forces, the dynamics that you've got to fight. So that's good news. We've got a bedrock there we can build from. But I think the crucial thing for me is that we need to realise wherever we are in NATO that we constantly need to be keeping other people abreast with what we're doing. There's a big European initiative called ISO, European Secure Software Defined Radio Waveform, which is a high data rate waveform that's coming on stream amongst about eight different European countries. And uh, this is going to be quite a transformation. transformational technology. It's a wideband link, primarily for land operations. But it allows, let's say you've got Finnish troops on one side of the line of advance, you've got French troops on the other. that's now got a bridge between them in terms of a high data rate waveform. But the crucial thing is, that's great, but how is that dovetailing into what JADC2 is doing? Are we confident that, when the Americans are involved, they can come up and play as well, that they've got a gateway into Essel. And the thing is with this is that it actually makes a lot of the kind of workaday stuff that perhaps doesn't get the crack of the whip it deserves suddenly very, very pertinent. Because link translation, this is going to become very, very important. Are we confident that we can move this traffic through these link translators and that traffic stays secure? So I think the the short answer would be... Let's look at what we already have in the Starlink realm. Let's look at how we're already doing things and think, what can we learn from that
0: in terms of how we then do connectivity in other areas moving forward? I had you on the show a couple, okay, I guess a couple months ago, we were talking c 2 and I think, you know, we, we addressed this question a little bit. Uh, but one of the frustrating things that I have about c 2 is a great concept, but when you try to figure out what's that concept mean in terms of actual warfighting. you start to get into all the service contributions to that construct. And then once you get into the service contributions, you're looking into the separate organizational elements. And if you step back and look at it, it's hard to sometimes identify what is being done differently mm. that's game changing in the JADC2 kind. There is stuff, but from a communications as you as you you know just mentioned, you know, we have to talk about it. Differently, and, and and show what that we're able to get those capabilities in the field. If you step back even further, if you look at it from a NATO perspective or regional, you, you have countries each contributing their own construct, and so forth down to the, through through their organizational structure. So, what do you see from a European perspective that is giving you hope that you know the the conversation about the need for information superiority for spectrum superiority is moving in the right direction and actually changing the way we fight, not just in the words, but down through the organization.
1: Well, the conference over the past uh, two days has, has given me significant hope from that score because we've got delegates from all over the Alliance and from allied countries as well who are coming in. And everybody is really, in a sense, speaking the same language. We had a great presentation today uh, from some of our German colleagues, and they were talking about the important work that they're doing there. We've heard from other coalition nations. We've heard from arguably smaller nations like Belgium, for instance, what their roadmap is, the Netherlands, how they're seeing this. So everybody, in a sense, gets it. You know, the product's been sold, everybody's buying into it, which is is a good thing because buying is really important in NATO. And, And one of the sort of ironies with NATO is that if you look at it from a hardware point of view, there's actually not that much that NATO has managed to sort of standardise from the hardware perspective beyond ammunition, these kind of platforms. Yeah, it's been more difficult since its existence. But what I have managed to do this is in terms of things like connectivity, command and control, all of these standards. So the, the thing I'm really encouraged about is there's nobody there who's saying, friend on, we've got this all wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be saying more stovepipe." Right? You know, this is what this this has its advantages. Are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater? everybody's on the same page. One of the big challenges that we're going to have is I think a lot of these efforts will develop at different speeds and that's where it's, where it's going to be really challenging because what you risk is in any coalition operation, you know, you, you end up fighting that war with the, with, with whoever rocks are, broadly speaking, and what they bring. What are you going to do when everybody's levels of connectivity and everybody's adoption of MDI, whatever form it takes, or MDO is at different points because it will be. That's that's the thing. And and that and I think in a sense we need to start thinking about that now because what we don't want to be thinking about it is when it's on on D Day plus one. You know, so we as 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 we go through these processes and it's brilliant everybody's on the same page, everyone, you know, everyone gets it. That's fantastic. But we also need the person in the room who's going to ask the difficult question. So if there's a war tomorrow, okay, country A, can you talk to country B? If not, what are you going to do about that?
0: Well, and that's been something that's, you know, kind of followed electronic warfare for for decades. Yeah. It's this idea of having to wait until that crisis moment to realize how important it was. And, and we've seen this on, on the U.S. side where you know, we'll be talking about We'll, we'll be beating the drum for for years and years, and we know what's going to happen. We know we need it, and but we have to wait to that crisis to get that 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 kind of stimulus into the into the system where it's actually effect- affecting real change. Hello everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems' research and development and production organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background?
2: Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to the innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research, and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense-making, up to tactical and operational-level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter.
0: This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crows Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field?
2: In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA systems, electronic systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world.
0: This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you?
2: Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work classification levels, but in Fast Labs we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs.
0: Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. You mentioned some great presentations this morning. You were one of them. So thank you for I'm your part. You spoke on multi-domain operations, but you, you focused on the notion of integration. And, and the role that that plays in this idea of MDO. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you shared with the audience today? So, yeah, I mean, so, but my
1: perspective was really to try and tell the audience through where we've been and where we're going, um, which, which sounds sort of terribly predictable, really. But the, the point I was trying to make is we've been through the revolution of, uh, in military affairs, we've been through network-centric warfare, We've been, well, we're going through multi-domain operations and, uh, we're going through multi-domain integration as well. And they're subtly different. The UK Ministry of Defence is, is very, very keen on multi-domain integration. It's produced a number of papers about it. It's had some good discussion. And what their approach is about having a of government approach. And it has a lovely sort of logical jump off point, if you like, or springboard, which is that. As we face competition now, competition doesn't just happen on the battlefield. It it can happen across all elements of statecraft. Uh, we've seen things like yeah, allegations of electoral interference uh, in our democracies across the world. We've seen you know we see fake news. We deal with it every day. We have all of these challenges, and they're competitive challenges, but they're happening in an unconventional way because they're attacking other parts of our statecraft. So how do we marshal our state as a whole to deal with that? And that requires a wholeness government approach. And that can be a
0: difficult thing to people to buy into. And with that all of government approach, you know, I think that, that the key is it, it's, it steps outside of your defense ministries or departments of defense. It's energy. It's it's treasury. It's every yeah. possible because it's almost it's an all of society yeah. problem, too. Um, and as we we've seen in you know, Ukraine, and then just obviously wars in the past. When you are in conflict or war, it's disruptive across the board in everybody's life. And in the spectrum, that's the same same case. So with this all government, approach, how, how do you get there? Cause I mean, we can have, send leader after leader from our defense ministries up to the stage. They'll, they'll be the same job. But we found that at least in the US, once you start talking about it outside of DOD, once you start talking about it in the other agencies of government that have to be a part of this conversation, the term changes. So, how do you get to that all of government approach? I agree it is, but is it from a European perspective, how is that embraced as an all government approach, or is it still struggling from uh, moving it from the defense ministry to other agencies?
1: I think it's a, it's a great question, Ken, actually. And I think you need to have probably an all of government, from the European perspective, an all of government approach across the board for pretty much everything, as well as defense. An example I would, I would use is. In the UK, the National Health Service, which is kind of the state uh, provider of healthcare, I remember a, a discussion a few years back about the quality of hospital food. And um, yeah, bear with me. There is a link with all of that. And one of the issues was that the government was having a very uh, understandably, We was, was trying to get people to eat healthily and and you know watch watch their weight and do one of these things to cut their own exposure to. Uh, cancer and heart disease, and all, all of these kinds of things. But what was exposed was that the quality of um, and the nutritional quality of food in British hospitals was shocking. And so, but, and you're thinking, Boch on. you've got this overarching goal as a government to get people more healthy, but when people are going into hospital, they're suddenly eating very bad food. All you have to imagine is from, from the, the questions regarding uh, climate change, you know, the government is committed to reducing greenhouse gases and all of this, but then if you're Promotion policies elsewhere government is that's increasing that, then that's that's detrimental to that goal. So I think the thing is to is to take the premise that this this is an all of government or an all of government problem. It's almost an all of society problem. So it needs an all of society government response. So it's one of those things you know, you, you as a policymaker, as a civil servant, you always need to have it at the back of your mind. We're gonna do this. Is the security input coast? Are we exposing ourselves in some way to 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 vulnerability? It doesn't have to dominate the thinking necessarily, but it should be there. And I think so. In in a sense, to take defense as, the, as as a sort of isolated point of this requires a whole of government approach. But actually, in a sense, all of government requires an all of government approach. You know, and defense is part of that conversation thing.
0: All right. And, and and I think that that gets back to education. You know, one of the thing one of the challenges from an advocacy perspective is it's very easy to jump deeply into the technical conversation. Yeah. where you actually lose many of the uh, audience members that you're trying to reach you know stepping back and just talking about how it basically how uh electromagnetic spectrum basically just interrupts or disrupts society as a whole and things that they are familiar with can actually have a a a positive effect on the conversation and get people's attention and so it's, it's it's a challenge to to both move the ball forward in a highly technical field but do so in a way that's not technical and kind of reaches everybody and makes it a relevant concern on everybody's part Absolutely, yeah. And I think if you really want to emphasize to somebody
1: the effect that, um, let's say, a, a, a very a strategic level cyber attack is going to have, or you know, maybe not not so much jamming, but this comes into it as well. Ask anybody, right? You know, tonight you're going home. You've been to the cinema. And for our American friends, you can't go and do but. You know, and okay, great. We'll use public transportation. That's down. This yeah, the signaling's down on the on the on the Washington DC Metro. Okay, at that time, you don't know what's happening, but this could well be that you've had a denial of service attack. Imagine saying to you know, saying to the average kind of 14, 15 year old, not going to access TikTok or Instagram because something's happened. So I, I I agree with you. I think a lot of the time we have to have the conversation about things that people can relate to in their everyday life. And realize that this is a consequence of
0: where we are, and it, and it's real. And it's not just the the, the uh, denial of service, and it, it's the effect that it has on people's ability to function in uh, in subsequent decision making. I, I was I was in D.C. on nine eleven, and when all of a sudden that happened, things shut down. People panicked, yeah. and once people started panicking, they were not making rational decisions why so is the irrational decision? And there was this, this escalating snowballing effect to the problem that, that we weren't prepared for. So you not only have, it's, it's not just like, oh, well, you know, you could deny some sort of service that you rely on. It, it's going to trigger cascading effects. And that's kind of why we see a lot of like test cyber uh, attacks and so forth around the globe and just trying to figure out how does it, how does a certain action disrupt your life and see how you respond. And, and if you don't respond properly, then that, keys in exactly where your vulnerability is, and, and so and so it feels like we're constantly chasing our vulnerabilities a lot, on a lot of times. So, um, you know, kind of sticking with your with your uh, presentation, then, like, what do you think are some of the key steps that have to be taken to more effectively and rapidly address some of the vulnerabilities we know today and we anticipate confronting? I mean, I think it's very hard because it's in a sense it's, it's hard to anticipate
1: the actions of your adversary to a point. But I think you've got to look at where you've got to look inwardly at your own societies and and try and see where the vulnerabilities are. I mean, it's a bit like what militaries do on the battlefield, for instance. Is that you know you you would hope you've got the electronic protection, men and women in near the forward line of engagement going. Yeah, you know you probably want to switch that off. You probably want to have a bit more MCON uh, emissions control. Whether that you red team eat quite a lot. Looking at the vulnerabilities are looking at how they're going to be addressed. At first blush, it seems to be a completely insurmountable task, but I don't, I don't believe it is. I think it's a case of just and and also realizing again, going back to this this topic that competition now is a whole of government thing because it's the whole of government that's that's going to be targeted. And so, how do you deal with that? So, where are your vulnerabilities? What things are you prepared to let be vulnerable if it's if you can protect something that's more the president or whatever it might be, which I know I know is a bit of a sort of, it's a bit of a kind of fudging the answer, but the problem is in a sense, there's no magic bullet. And looking at, looking at, so how, how does the military manage what it does in the electromagnetic spectrum? and What can we learn from the, almost sort of from the EW 101, all the stuff you learn, right? Well, how much of that can you actually bleed through? into your, into the civilian life, whether you're just an individual with your own business, whether you're a government department, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from doing that. But then that comes back into this thing about having a conversation with people, making them aware of the threats, you know, making sure sort of, that people the on the street understands that, you know, we're facing difficulties and we
0: need to mitigate. Them. I'm sure this will open up, you know, we have one more day at the conference here. This, uh, episode will air later in May. But we are currently live streaming from the Crow's Nest as well on Twitter spaces. And so if you want to get more in depth in terms of some of the discussion, you can go to Twitter follow me at FTC and host and you'll see uh, all the recordings, the live streaming that we're doing throughout the week. We are out of time. And I, I do see that we are set for another round. And unfortunately, I don't think we can handle another round and still do podcast. Lot, uh, look that I think we're going to uh, call today. But I do greatly appreciate you taking time to join me here on From the crisis once again. And uh, we'll see you on our live stream tomorrow uh, as we wrap up the show. But uh, thanks thanks, again for joining me. And it's a real pleasure. Always good to catch up. Thanks so much. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank once again my guest, Tom Withington, for taking a few moments out of his busy schedule at AOC Europe to sit down with me and share some of his thoughts about the conference. As always, you can rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast, and we always enjoy hearing from our listeners. You can also follow me on Twitter at FTC and Host. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. FastLabs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com fastlabs.